today <coughs> begins actually the first shear or lecture actually in the series of Hashkofa. And uh, of course what's intended is that a Hashkofa shear will be presented basically every week. And today is the first shear in this particular series of Hashkofa lectures. Now, before entering the actual topic of Hashkofa, the actual discipline or the subject area, it would be worthwhile and it's certainly very important for us to preface it with certain ideas. In other words, there are certain concepts which are important to know before we actually delve into the actual material of Hashkofa. <clears throat> and this will provide um, some kind of enlightenment as we uh, uh, pursue our studies in Hashkofa. Now, what ideas would I like to present first? Since this is an organized shear and a sequential shear, the first idea, of course, which I'd like to present is what is a definition of Hashkofa? A general definition of Hashkofa. Now, the term Hashkofa in Hebrew basically means to a looking, an overview, a survey, is to look down over. That's what the Hebrew word Hashkofa means. But we can ask a Hashkofa of what? Notice, what are we surveying? What are we overviewing or what are we looking at? Now, the idea is that the study of Hashkofa is really, and this is basically a succinct definition, it's a study of the grand design or, if you want to have another way, the general plan of all creation, which continues, of course, every day, as we live. In other words, it's a study of the internal design. In other words, what determines the world that we see? What makes it be the way it is? And why is it the way it is? So therefore, Hashkofa is that study of this grand design or this general plan of all creation. And also, of course, it enables us to understand every facet or every aspect of reality. In other words, this is the Rabbani Shiloilam's design or plan which he initiated and which he follows strictly. That's what Hashkofa really is. That is the definition of Hashkofa. Now I understand that other people may have other definitions of Hashkofa, but if you begin to think of it, and not think of it narrowly, but in terms of its general ideas, that's really what Hashkofa is. It is that understanding of the design or the plan which the Rabbani Shiloilam follows, and of course which he initiated. It's this understanding of the grand design of all creation. Now, in more sophisticated or more philosophical terminology, if you want to you know, state the definition of Hashkofa in a more uh, uh, a sophisticated expression, then we can say that what Hashkofa is, is the true ontological structural system, or rather it's the true ontological structure or system that the Rebunishlam created and maintains. In other words, Ontology means being. Therefore, Hashkof would be the true structure of all being, the system. In other words, how all being relates and why. That's what Hashkof is. And of course, the Rabbanishim created this ontological structure, and he maintains this, the existence of this ontological structure. So therefore, that's a general definition of Hashkof. Now, to know Hashkof well, is really to understand the underlying principles or the underlying determinants of all reality. That's really what Hashkofa comprises. 
itself of. In other words, when you know Ashkafa, you really have an in-depth understanding of the ultimate causes of why things are the way they are, and exactly how are they, in what way are they. That's what Ashkafa yields to a person. The ultimate underlying causes or principles, the actual determinants of reality. This is what happens when you actually know Hashkafa well. Now, it would be interesting to understand what does Hashkafa answer? What kind of questions does Hashkafa address itself to or deals with? In other words, if we do learn Hashkafa, what kind of questions will we have answered to ourselves and also, of course, to be able to give it over to others? Hashkafa in general answers not only what happens, but also why things happen the way they do. As such, of course, it's probably the most basic and fundamental limud or study that a person can engage in. Now, besides this, these questions, in other words, why or what happens and also why things happen the way they do, there are other kinds of questions that Ashkof addresses itself to. And I'd like to present just some of them. And uh, perhaps this will also provide a motivational uh, statement. In other words, if we see the kinds of questions that Hashkofer answers, then of course the person is more motivated, more interested in learning Hashkofer. What are some of the questions that Hashkofer answers? Well, there are many, but I've taken certain select ones just to, uh, as a representative sample. First question is, who is the Rabbani Shalom? That's a very powerful question. Who is God? In other words, what can we comprehend of God and what can we not comprehend of God? In other words, what has He allowed us to understand about His own essence? And what has He not allowed us to understand about the nature of God? This is the first question that Ashkafer certainly will deal with. Second, why did He create the universe? What, did it, uh, what, what does it get the Rabbani Shalom? The fact that He creates the universe. Especially, why does he create man? What does man, what does he need man for in that sense? In other words, the purpose of creation. This is the second question. Another question is, why did the Rabbani Shalom make man in this particular physical form? A head, on top, two arms, two legs, a trunk, and so on. Different kind of organs. Why does man look this way physically? Another question. What is the psychological, this is the physical idea of man that I asked. Next question is, what is the psychological structure of man according to Hashkofer? And why must it be this way? And of course, an answer to that will give us a tremendous understanding in the entire area of psychology. But of course, because Hashkofer deals with everything, Hashkofer of course must deal with this also. <clears throat> the, ultimate, the ultimate understanding in terms of the psychological structure of man. Now, another question, what is evil and why must it exist? Why does there have to be evil? What does the version want evil for? Why does it have to be? Another question, why must there be pain and suffering? Why? Isn't it sufficient for this world to go on without having all the tremendous anguish and agony that man experiences through all the thousands of years that he lives? In other words, what purpose does all this suffering serve? Another question. What precisely does God want from man? Not vaguely, okay, or uh, equivocally, or ambiguously. What exactly does God want from man? 
Another question. What is the exact definition of Judaism? What is the je- definition of a Jew? Not according to halacha, because halachically, of course, we know what the definition of a Jew is. However, according to Hashkofa, what is the essential concept which Jews have, which defines them as being Jewish? Very important question, and actually very few people can answer that. Another question. Why wasn't Adam Rishon, the first man, a Jew? If Jews are the pivotal people of the Bria, so why is it we have to wait 2,000 years before the Jews first make their entrance on the historical scene of man? Why wasn't Adam Rishon Jewish? Another question. If it is necessary to observe the Torah in order to give purpose to the entire universe, then why was the Torah given to man 2,400 years after creation? Does that make sense? If, if man must observe the Torah, then why is God giving the Torah 2,400 years after the world is created? Another question. Why are there non-Jews at all if only Jews fulfill the purpose of creation? What's the point of having non-Jews? And in that question itself, we can ask, why was there a division of mankind? Why did it all of a sudden happen that became Jews and non-Jews? What does that mean, the quanta Ashkofa? Another question. Why are there two Mashiachs? Most people don't even know that there are two, but uh, I'll, I'll ask that question right now. Why are there two Mashiachs? The Mashiach ben Yosef and the Mashiach ben David. And also, what is the true purpose of these Mashiachim? What does a Mashiach do? What do we need him for? For salvation? Why do we need a Mashiach for salvation? A man, if he's put down here in order to go through a certain test, so let him do what he can in his lifetime. If he passes, that's good. If not, not. And when he finishes, he dies. Why does mankind need to be salvated? Or why does mankind have to be saved? For what purpose? The ideas of Mashiach is nothing more than an interference in the intest of mankind. That's really what it is. Why does God want to interfere with man's test? So that's another question. Another question. What really happens in Ulam Habba? What is it really all about? If that's what we're all waiting about, we're waiting for. Also, what makes history proceed the way it does? In other words, history is nothing more than the ongoing progression of the events of man. So therefore, the question is, why does history proceed the way it does? What are the underlying causes of man's history? Now, of course, many historians, of course, they study history and they look for different kinds of causes, economic reasons, military reasons, political reasons, and so on. However, according to Hashkofa, what really makes history progress the way it does? And if we understand that, not only will we understand what has transpired to man and why, but we can also have an idea of what will be, or what will happen to man. So that question, of course, is a very crucial question and has great relevance to us. Another question. In terms of history, why do we see the spectacular rise of science only in the last 150 years? Because if you think about it, the life of man wasn't that much different in the 16th century than it was 2,000 years or 4,000 years ago. In the last 150 years, we see a spectacular rise in the, in the sophistication of civilization. Why? What does this all mean? Another question. When does the Rabbanishlam interact with creation? When? And what rules does he follow when he does? 
Another question. How do we reconcile the Rabbani Shlom as being only good, and on the other side we see tremendous evil that goes on, that obviously the Rabbani Shlom allows to be, he allows man to engage in this tremendous evil. For instance, wars, tremendous crime, the Holocaust, and so on. How do we understand, or how do we reconcile, the idea that God is an all-beneficent being, and the idea that there is such a tremendous proliferation of evil throughout. And of course, besides the evil that man does, which God obviously allows to happen, because the fact that man does it, if God, a man could not do it unless the Rebbe Shalom did not allow it to happen. Of course, part of that is also why is there that you see uh, evil in the world that transpires not as a result of man, there are babies who are born deformed or whatever, people who die early, people who get into accidents or whatever. So, therefore, of course, it's very important to answer this kind of a question. Now, I have asked approximately um, 18 questions, just as a tongue wetter, just to see what Hashkofa deals with. And also we can see the breadth of what Hashkofa deals with. Now, these are only some of the questions which are dealt with in Hashkofa. As I said, these questions, of course, are only some of the questions that are dealt with in Hashkofa. What have we done so far? Well, we've provided a definition of Hashkofa, which is an understanding of the general design of all creation, and also presented certain questions which Hashkofa, of course, attempts to deal with. Now, let us continue uh, in terms of dealing with certain basic ideas as a preface before we go into the area of Hashkofa. I want to ask another fundamental question which is very important and where do we see the obligation to learn Hashkofa in the Torah? How do we know? Most people don't deal with Hashkofa they stay away from it for whatever reason so my question then is where is the obligation where is the Chivo the Chiv in the Torah to learn Hashkofa? should be interesting to see and also to see what the uh, repercussions are and the answer to that is that, let's take a look at in Parshas V'yashanan. There is a very interesting posset. It says there, V'yodato hayoyim, and you, will, and, you shall, and you shall know this day, V'hashivoyso elovecho, and you shall turn it into your heart. Ki Hashem Hulokim, that God is the Lord, V'ashumayim ima'al, in the heavens above, and on the earth below, inoid, there is no other. Okay, we say that pasuk, of course, many times, and we say it in Olenu also at the end of Philo. Now, let us take a look at that pasuk and analyze it, and we will see that that pasuk reveals one the obligation to learn Hashkafa. It reveals two the actual definition of Hashkafa in that pasuk, which most people just run right over. Let's go back over the beginning and see that person. God says, and you shall know this day. That immediately tells us two things. God says, and you shall know. That's a tzivui. When God says, and you shall know, that is a commandment. Correct? What are we commanded to do? To know. So, and you will know this day means you will, there's a commandment to know. What is there a commandment to know? Let's go further. 
Now, Rahashivrusu Eluvecho means, and you shall settle your heart. What does that mean? It means that as a result of insufficient knowledge, your heart will be agitated. Okay? That means you won't know sufficiently, and you'll have many questions. So, therefore, Rahashivrusu Eluvecho, you have to settle your heart, you have to quiet your heart, which means that you have to know clearly. That's what Rahashivrusu Eluvecho means. You have to quiet your heart, means your data you have to know, in what kind of knowledge you have to know, that kind of knowledge which, which quiets the heart, where you're not agitated, where you're not seeking to answer questions which you're confused by. Therefore, what it means is, your data there's an obligation to know clearly, means where the heart is at peace. Okay, that's what it means. So we now see three things. We have a chiv to know clearly. Okay? Now, but what do we have to know clearly? What is the obligation to know what clearly? Well, let's proceed. Ki Hashem hu Hulokim. That God, that being or that entity that we know as God, hu Hulokim. He is the Lord. That's what we have to know clearly. That God is Elokim. That's what it says. That He is Elokim. What is Elokim? Elokim, what does it mean by an Elokim, a Lord? Well, the most pivotal and essential definition of Elohim means a master, an Odoim. That's why we say Baruch we say Adni, because Addo, we say Noi, right? It means Adni, means master, my master. Blessed are you, my master, okay? Therefore, Elohim means when you say the Lord, what you really call God is a master, an absolute ruler. A supreme director of everything. That's what Elohim is. So therefore, what do we see so far? That we have to know clearly that God is the master, the absolute ruler. This is what God wants us to know. Okay. And then it says, Bashmai Mal, of course, and the heavens above and the earth below, of course. There is no, there is none other. Which would, Poshib uh, Shat is, of course, that there is no other master besides God. So this Posik tells us clearly there is an obligation to know clearly that God is the master and there is no other master. Okay? That's clearly what the Pasuk says. Now, interestingly enough, there's another Pasuk which is just a couple of Pasukim before that that says, again, you have been shown to know. In other words, where has it been shown? So Rashi says on that Pasuk that you have been shown at Har Sinai. God actually revealed to the entire Christ world an interesting knowledge. How he showed Christ through. In whatever way, whatever, of course, prophetic experience happened at Har Sinai, he showed Christ through. So God is saying to Christ through, You have been shown at Sinai to know what? What have you been shown to know? Ki Hashem. Again, we come to that idea. That God is the Lord. There is none but besides God. Again we see that. That the Rebbe says at how Sina you have been shown to know that I am the Lord, the absolute ruler, the supreme authority. In Enoid Movado, of course, in Poshet minimally means there is no other master. But of course Enoid Movado means something far more profound, which of course, which I'll explain later. In the shroom to come. But in any case, that the Rebbe says again, 
that what did the Jews experience at Har Sinai? What were they shown? They were shown that God is the Lord. He is the absolute ruler, the Odoin, the Ribonoi Shel Olam, literally, the master of the universe. Okay, so we have two Psukim, which clearly indicate three ideas. One, that is an obligation. Two, to know clearly, three, that God is the absolute ruler of the universe. This is what those two Psukim show. The Vyudata Yom is the clear commandment, and the Vatovitz Vadas is the event that God in actuality showed Kai Israel the commandment itself, or the direction of the commandment, the directive of the commandment, that He is the absolute master. Now, therefore we see that God is commanding twice, basically, that we have to know clearly that He is the absolute ruler or the absolute master. Now, we can now begin to ask ourselves, wait a minute. Now, <clears throat> we can ask ourselves, exactly what does this mean? When we say the Rebbeinu is a master, what does this knowledge consist of? God says you have to know clearly that He is the master of the universe. What does it mean to know He's master? Sounds like a very simple idea. Correct? <clears throat> so, the first question is, what does it mean to know that God is the master of the universe? The second question, that the truth is that it's very difficult to understand. To know God as master takes exactly two seconds. God tells me and I know. In other words, if the simple idea was all that had to be known that he is a master, then mere seconds it would take to comprehend this. In other words, God would inform me that he is the master and I now know this. But we look at the Pasuk and the Pasuk says, and you shall know clearly as if you've got to sit diligently for hours, for weeks on end, to figure it out that he is the master. So obviously, the lotion, the expression, and you shall know clearly, indicates that in order to get clear knowledge, it takes tremendous diligence, tremendous application, with intense, difficult contemplation, to achieve an understanding of this concept. That's what you see the Prosik says. Most people don't realize but if you look at the prospect, if God has to tell you you shall know clearly, he's obviously not referring to a mere idea that we know that he is master. Oh, then what takes so long to know this clearly? He's obviously referring to something which is different in the sense that it really takes a tremendous effort to know clearly. Because means you have to quiet your heart. Obviously the knowledge is so profound that your heart is very agitated. It has tremendous amount of questions, so God says, quiet your heart, spend the time diligently, and really engage in profound contemplation to quiet that heart. So obviously we're really dealing with a chokhmah, we're dealing with a knowledge which is far more profound than what we think of it at the first glance. So therefore the question is, what kind of a knowledge necessitates such diligence and contemplation to acquire? Okay? That's an analysis of this process. Now, to answer that question is the following. The truth is that to know that the Rabbani Shalom is a master comprises three areas. What does that mean? To know that the Rabbani Shalom is an absolute master involves one. That you have to know that the Rabbani Shalom's mastery 
And the fact that he's the only master is necessitated by his metzius, by his nature, by his essence. In other words, when God says, I am the master, you have to know that he is the master. You have to understand that he is the master, not because he decided to appoint himself, himself or others appointed him. We have to understand how this attribute of mastery is necessary. It's forced because of his internal essence. So therefore, clearly, if the nature or the essence or the metzis of the Rabbani Shalom demands or forces his mastery, we therefore must study metzis habere. Metzis Hashem. That's the first area. Okay? We must understand that the mastery of God emanates or is necessitated by his essence or his nature. Therefore, the first area of study is metzis Hashem. To understand the nature of, or essence of God, of course, as much as we can comprehend it. This is what we must study. In other words, we must study the Rebbeinu himself. First area, or the first idea, which is included in the concept, Hashem, who Elohim, He is the Master. Because that's what I have to know. You are the Master, I understand why you're the Master, because you must be the Master, because of your nature. So obviously I have to study God's nature, and how it dictates or forces mastery. Second area is that when we say that God is the Lord, or He is the Master, then we have to understand, we have to know what is the intended mastery that God is going to master. What is His intended directorship? What does He intend to be in charge of? Therefore, we have to understand, in other words, the potential manifestation of that absolute mastery which is nothing more than the general plan or design of creation because the design of creation is the intended mastery that God is going to implement therefore again the second area <clears throat> when we say that God is Elohim he is the Lord he is the Odoin of the Bria what we must understand also is his real Adnos his intended Adnos his intended plan of mastery which means we have to understand the Ratzon Hashem, what God wants to do, what His intended plan of mastery is. And what is that? That is the general design of all creation. So we see it's getting larger and larger. But we see how these logically follow if you want to have a comprehensive understanding of what the mastery of God is. So therefore we, of course, have to have Ratzon Hashem. So we now know the first area is we have to study Matthias Hashem. Because that demands mastery. The second is Rotten Hashem, the will of God. Because that is the intended plan of God. That is the actual potential mastery. The third area is to know the actualization of this absolute mastery. The ongoing proceedings of God's mastery itself. Which of course is Dan Hogus Hashem. And of course what this means is the actual ongoing history of man. From the beginning of time, of course, until the end of all time, or rather until Ilm Habba. That is the ongoing Hanhoga, the actual directorship, the actual implementation of God carrying out His plan. So we see God as the Master, because we see Him directing and manipulating everything. Therefore, that of course is the Hanhoga Sashem. We now see that a knowledge of Hashem Huarokim, that God is the Lord, or that he is the Arduino master, means, or it comprises three areas. One, the first area, 
is his necessary or ontological mastery. We have to study Matthias Hashem. The second area is his intended planned mastery, which is the Ratzon Hashem. And the third area is the actualization of that mastery, his actual mastery, which is the Anhogus Hashem. Therefore, we now see that Hashem Orokim is far more complex than, the, than we have seen initially when we looked at the Prasuk. In other words, <clears throat> we now see that the study of Hashkofa, and we now see what Hashkofa is, Hashkofa in general terms is nothing more than the understanding completely and comprehensively that God is the master. That is the study of Hashkofa, which is something which we have arrived at a different definition than we started out, much more profound. The study of Hashkofa is the complete total understanding of God's mastery in all its ramifications, in terms of his being, in terms of his will, in terms of his actualization. That's what Hashkofa is. In other words, we see that Hashkofa derives its obligations to study it from that Pasuk, and it derives its definition from that Pasuk. Now, therefore, we can now offer a modified definition from the previous definition. Before I said the definition of Hashkofa was the general design of all creation, I am now going to modify it in light of this Pasuk. And the definition, therefore, is as follows. The study of Hashkofa is the general study of Hashem's complete and absolute mastery over all reality. And it is subdivided into three areas. The first area is a study of God's nature, the Metzius Hashem. The second area is a study of Hashem's design or His plan, which is the Ratzon Hashem. And the third area is a study of Hashem's action, His Hanhogas, the Hanhoga of the Rabbani Shalom. This then is the definition of Hashkofa and also an understanding of what three areas comprise the study of Hashkofa. So we see that Vyodato and Vahashivoisa tells us the obligation to study Hashkofa, because Vyodato and Vahashivoisa means you shall know clearly, so it means you have to have an obligation to know clearly. And Hashem Wolokim, that particular phrase, tells us the general definition of Hashkofa. And from it we now can understand its three subdivisions. Therefore, we have now basically answered the two previous questions. The first question, of course, was what does the knowledge of Hashem's mastery consist of when it says Hashem Olakim? And the answer, of course, we have three areas. His Mitzius, His Rotsun, and His Anhogas. That is what Hashem Olakim consists of. That is what the understanding of God's mastery consists of. And we have answered also the second question, and that is that obviously... Merely to know God as master, master takes exactly two seconds. Merely it's a matter of knowing. But to know clearly, which indicates great diligence, tremendous application, uh, a lot of brain power, a lot of profound thinking and contemplation, of course, takes far more because we see now what Hashem Kim comprises. That in truth, in order to know all these areas, and therefore to reach an understanding that Hashem Kim does take a lot of studying and a tremendous amount of thinking and contemplation. What I'd like to mention also is two, two, two things. 
So we see, therefore, that the next, the Pesach, which I had mentioned previously, that Ki Hashem, or rather, Ato Horeis Vadas, Ki Hashem Hulokim Enyol Mavadoi, that the Jews at Har Sinai were actually shown, not intellectually, but by virtue of their being. It's a different kind of experience. It's an experiential experience which one knows by virtue of his being, not through his mind. They actually experienced, or they saw, comprehended, the true Yichuch Litosoi, the true absolute mastery or rulership of God over all creation. This is what the Rebbe showed them, okay, at Har Sinai, in order to implant the Amuna, which would then, of course, be carried down from generations to generations. And this is really the historical transmission, which we transmit, that God is one. And the Jews actually experienced that, the Horaya, you have been shown to know that I am master. That's exactly what God did. Because that is the message that Jews communicate from generation to generation, all the way to our present time. Now, also, just as an interesting idea, in Yom Kippur, the last statement we make is Hashem Gulokim. Okay? And of course, we can begin to see why, because that is the ultimate statement we can say. In other words, Yom Kippur is a day of tshuva, to do tshuva repentance. Correct? So at the end of the day, when a person has, does it, has done repentance, he has prayed and has forgiveness and so on, what is that which he has asked forgiveness for? What is the knowledge which he has acquired? What is that statement which he says? And the answer is the last statement on Yom Kippur. Hashem Hulokim, that God is the Lord, which is the exact thing that the Revelation wants to know in the first place. And it's the exact thing which God transmitted to Klai Yisrael directly, that they should transmit throughout all the generations. So we begin to see how this understanding of that Pesach ties up many different areas. Now, I'd like to point out an interesting uh, conclusion or implication, and that is that many Bnei engage primarily in the Adiyas HaMitzvahs, which means to the study or the understanding of the commandments itself, the obligations, the different mitzvahs that we are obligated to do. Now, of course, this is a crucial limud. No one cannot minimize this. It's crucial that one have Yadiyas HaMitzvahs. And one must, of course, spend much time in understanding what exactly are the mitzvahs. So, therefore, there are all kinds of sforum uh, uh, written about it. Gemara primarily betakes itself with that question. What is the halacha and what conditions does it function and so on. That's the entire shock of Tai of Gemara. <clears throat> but, however, or rather, now the importance or rather the obligation to know the mitzvahs and therefore to study Gemara and of course halacha and poiskim and shulchanach and so on is because the mitzvahs are commanded to us by the Rabbanu so obviously we must study them. Now, if you think however, for one minute, the mitzvahs actually are nothing more than our manifestation or our expression of saying that God is the master. That's what the mitzvah is. The mitzvah is a commandment. We who follow these commandments, therefore testify, we acknowledge or we admit that God is the supreme ruler or supreme master. Therefore we do his, his what? His bidding or his rotsam. Correct? Therefore we do the mitzvahs. So therefore obviously we must study exactly what the mitzvah is in order to be able to perform it properly. And thereby by our actions in performing the mitzvahs we are really testifying that the Rabbani Shalom is Elohim. Now, if we however think of it and we look at this Pasuk, and this is where we begin to see the error that is made 
unfortunately, by most uh, uh, many Bnei Torah, that the Rebbeim, besides him wanting you to know that the Yediyas HaMitzvah, the Mitzvah itself, which of course is mandatory in order to perform it, he also wants you to know who Elohim, that he is the Master. Learning what the Mitzvah is does not give you the knowledge of who God is. And in what do we understand when we say that he is the master? The only way to reach that conclusion is by learning hashkafah. Therefore we see that there is an obligation. Beside the obligation of Yediyas HaMitzvah, there is also the obligation of Yediyas Hashem to know God. And that is given to us by the Pasek, V'yodata Hayoyim V'ashivosevelvecho. Hashem, who will look him. And that's exactly what the Jews were showed, shown at, of course, Har Sinai. Therefore, we see that besides an obligation to study the mitzvahs, there is also an obligation to study God Himself, to understand that He is the Master, because that is a specific commandment. God commands to know clearly that He is the Master. And by studying the mitzvahs, by being a fallful in the mitzvahs, and the different halach and so on, we do not reach this conclusion. We do not reach this understanding of exactly what does it mean that God is the Master. We cannot see the intended design of creation by studying the mitzvahs. Therefore, Chazal, of course, and you see that in Gemara, studied also Hashkofa and Kabbalah, which is nothing more than the metaphor of Hashkofa. And we see this because we see that Chazal also wrote Svarim called Midrashim and also the Agadito in the Gemara. And the Agadito and the Midrashim is the repository of the principles of Ashkofa. That is why they bothered including it in Shas. Because you must study that also. Because there's no other way to get to the knowledge that God is the supreme ruler. That's why Shas is comprised of two things. It is comprised of the halachic area. So therefore Gemara, of course, involves itself in the entire development of the halacha. Because we must know the idea of Samitzvah. But you also must know the idea of the Rebbeinah himself. That you must study. Agadato, you must study Midrashim, you must study Hashkofa Swam. That's the only way to get to that idea. And the fact that Chazal included that in Shas, the significance of that, of that is because there's a Khiv to learn that also. So, therefore, the implication of what I have just said is that it is unfortunate that the study of Hashkofa, which is the study of the knowledge of the Rabbanishlam, the Metziah Sabere, the Rotsen Habere, in other words, the entire intended mastery, the design of the entire Bria, and the Anhog of the Rabbanisham is not studied at all, which is very unfortunate. But we see clearly that just as much as there is Chiyuv to understand the mitzvah itself, there is also an obligation to understand the Rabbanisham and the fact that he is Elohim. And that you can only understand by, by, by learning Hashkofa. And the proof of that, of course, is that the Torah says, there is the Chiyuv. And the fact that Chazal themselves put in the Gemara, which is Torah Shabbat they put in tremendous amounts of Agadotah because there's an obligation to study that also. And I felt that's very important to know. I'd like to mention also in addition that in the Zoya, okay, in the Zoya Chodosh, uh, in uh, Shia Hashiram, there's a very famous Zoya, and I'm not going to bring the entire Zoya down, but the Zoya says specifically 
that one who does not have the knowledge of the Rabbani Shalom in different areas, which of course comprises Harash Kofor, will be evicted from that area of Udom Habor that one can only enter if he was Isik and Hashkafa, which means the idea that the Rabbani Shalom is Elohim. The Zoya is very strong in its expression, its lotion, that one who does not have this idea actually is denied a tremendous area of Ulam Habba. And according to the Zoya, it sounds like that is the fundamental area of Ulam Habba, according to, that, according to the Zoya. But certainly one is denied a fundamental area of Ulam Habba if they lack the understanding of Hashkafa. And we see why, because the Rabbani Shalom wants Jews to know who were Lokim. And that's why he shows them on how Sinai. Therefore, it's very important, of course, crucial for us to engage in the study. And to that effect, of course, uh, I'm going to begin saying, of course, this Shirum in the following weeks. And to try to develop the, this comprehension uh, amongst you. Before beginning the area of Hashkafa, I would like to mention a very important and crucial idea. And that is, what kind of knowledge and in what form should one strive for in order to know Hashkafa best? The answer to this question, obviously, is really the objective we should strive for. Most shiurim presented in Hashkafa are offered in fragmented pieces. One shir not related at all to each other, or even if they are related, they are related in a superficial manner. In addition, the concepts presented are poorly or not defined at all. Furthermore, many shurim do not present Hashkafa ideas which are fundamental and basic, and which determine other ideas. Thus, as a result, most people have a very poor understanding of the fundamental beliefs and principles of Judaism. In these Hashkafa shurim which are being offered to you, the ideas will be presented employing five criteria, which should tremendously facilitate an understanding of Hashkafa. They are the following. 1. A clear and unambiguous definitions which are offered for the concepts. 2. Fundamental and basic concepts that are principles for other ideas. 3. Concepts which are presented are presented in a logical order and proper sequence. 4. All concepts which are presented are understood in terms of a system of interacting concepts, thus enabling one to see the true relationship of one concept to another. And the fifth criteria, a sufficient number of concepts are presented to create a comprehensive system. In this manner, one can achieve an excellent and profound understanding of the concepts which are found in Judaism and which form the foundation of our belief. Before one actually can go into Ashkafa, one has to first become familiar with terms. Because what do we mean when we say many of the terms that are used? Uh, and there's a lot of confusion that abounds with these terms in terms of Hashkafa. For instance, you have the word Hashkafa, you have the word Musa, uh, you have another word Kabbalah, and so on. You know, you have a lot of words that seem to mean very similar things. So, uh, certainly an understanding of what constitutes or what's the definition of the term is very important before we go into it. Second is a comprehensive overview of what Hashkoff is all about is also in order before we actually go into Hashkoff. In other words, one should have some kind of a framework before you go into an area as large as Hashkoff.
So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to discuss basically two ideas. One is I'm going to give you some kind of a conceptual framework of what Jewish philosophy is all about. And then I'm going to go briefly into some of the uh, important ideas in terms of the history of Hashkofa, which is important to know, certainly in terms of development. So that, that's how I'm going to begin the ideas of Hashkofa. Now, let's begin by understanding that there are basically three areas that one understands when he begins understanding the system. Let me give you a good, a good example, okay? Let's assume you've been hired to work in a factory. And you go into the factory, and the, uh, the owner says, look, you know, uh, look around, see what's, uh, see what's around the factory and so on, and you figure out what's going on, okay? Now, basically, there are three areas that you're going to want to be concerned about the place you're going to work. The first area is called the design. What in the world is this factory all about? What does it make? What are the divisions of the factory? For instance, let's assume the factory makes women's handbag, okay? Something more appropriate. Uh, so you'd want to know, first of all, what's the product? Uh, what are the divisions in the factory? There's a, there's a manufacturing division, there's a marketing division, there's a public relations division, there's an accounting division, and so on. So we begin to see that every, the factory itself is divided into different divisions of the factory itself. After that, you'd want to understand, okay, I understand more or less what's going on in the factory, the objectives and so on, and the way it's put together. But which area or what machines make which things? Okay, so you, if you're in a factory which has a huge floor space, you'll know that those machines there make the, the, uh, the leather part of it, and these make the, uh, the buckle that closes the handbag and so on. In other words, different machines make different things. So that's the second area. The third area is that you'll go over to a machine and you'll actually say to the operator, how do you work this machine? Okay? Okay, so those are the three ideas. You want to know, first of all, about the design, the general idea, the plan of the factory. The second thing you want to know is the actual machinery that does the actual things that they make. And the third idea you want to know is how do you work those machines, the techniques involved. Okay, that's an example. Now let's move into the thing which I'm comparing it to. Take a look at all of creation, okay? What I mean all of creation, what do I mean? I mean the spiritual universe, and there's an entire universe of spiritual beings, angels and whatever, the physical universe. Those two universes comprises all of creation, okay? The physical and the spiritual. Now, in understanding those two universes, you'll want to know three things. First, you want to know the, the design of the universe. In other words, what, are the, what kind of questions are in the, the, uh, the understanding of design? Why was the universe made? Why was it made in the first place? Why was it made in this way, where you have a spiritual and you have a physical? Okay? What kind of things are found in this universe? Man, when I mean man, I mean the species of man. What's the purpose of mankind? Why does he look the way he does? and so on. How do we explain the relationship between God and the universe? 
when does he intervene, when does he not? How do we understand the, the, entire, the entire historical cycle of what goes on in this universe? And so on. Words, what you're really after is a, an understanding of the design. It's similar to if you look at a building and you walk over to an architect and you say, show me your plans. The plans he's got to show you has everything about that building. The entire structure, the entire purpose of everything in that building is clear in the architectural plans. There's nothing that's vague. Every bolt is enumerated because that's what you have to buy. Uh, the, the entire electrical system and the plumbing system and so on is clearly there why it's placed here and not there and so on. So in other words, the design of the creation is the first thing you want to know, right? What is it all about? The second thing you want to know is how does it work? How does it work? How do people get judged? What happens in the universe? In actuality, what do angels do? Do they, are they some kind of mechanism in, in the way that God runs the universe? When the Revolution wants something done, what does he do? He does it himself? Or he has other things doing it for him? Is there a heavenly court that tries man or God does it himself? What's the actual mechanism of the universe? When the Revolution created the universe, how did he do it? Now, how do you start off the process of creation itself? How does God emanate uh, 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 physical or spiritual substance, whatever it is, from himself? In other words, the actual mechanism of the universe, how does it work? And the third idea you want to know is, okay, I understand the design. I understand how the universe operates. Now, according to that design, mankind has a specific responsibility because it goes on the idea called purpose. What is that responsibility is part of the design. How do I do that responsibility? Okay, I know what the task is. How do I go and do it? What's the technique of carrying out the actual responsibility which the, the, the design says must be done? Okay, so you've got three areas. You've got the area called the design, the grand design, or the general plan of the entire universe, or all creation. And I, I pointed out what those things mean. It means purpose, it means the components of the universe, the interrelationship between components, the events that the components go through, which is the history and so on. You've got the mechanism, the actual operation of that universe. How does everything work? How do things get done? And then you've got the techniques where a person wants to actively intervene in terms of what he's supposed to do. How does he go about doing what was assigned to him? So those are the techniques. Okay? Everybody understand that clearly? You've got the three ideas. You've got the design, you've got the mechanism, and you have the technique. Three different conceptual areas. Okay? And it was illustrated by the idea of a factory. It's the same idea. Okay, you'll always want to know the general idea or the design. You want to know how the thing works. And then you want to know how do you work it. You can take the same analogy to everything by a car. Okay, what's the general design of a car? It's got the electrical system and the combustion system and, and the transmission system and so on. Okay, then what parts do what? What the, I know that there has to be, for those familiar with a car, there has to be a fuel intake. So you have to have a mixture of fuel and air. What does that? So it's 
carburetor. How does the carburetor work and so on? This is not a short course in, in auto mechanics. I'm just showing you the same idea applies. And then, okay, how do I drive a car? You got driving schools for that. Okay, same three ideas involved. Now, let's go to terms. First, we have the different ideas, right? Now, let's see what the terms are. When you want to study the grand design, what are you really studying? You're studying what's called Hashkofa. Okay? Now you begin to understand. Hashkofa is primarily a study of the design itself. Hashkofa, what does the word Hashkofa really come from? from comes from the word Hishkif means to oversee, to overlook. It's really an overview of everything. That's what Hashkofa is. It's a general system of everything. The grand design, the architectural plans, whatever you want to call it. That's what Hashkofa is. Jewish philosophy. That's really what it is. If you want to study the mechanism, how things work, the intrinsic mechanism is take you as a person. How do you work? And I don't mean the physical, bio, you know, what biology sees you. I mean what spiritually makes you work? There's an ishama and so on. How does an ishama interact with the body? Okay? There are certain transcendental forces which you emerge, which we'll be getting into, and so on. The actual mechanism, the study of that primarily is the area called Kabbalah. Okay? So the idea of Kabbalah primarily is the study really of the underlying mechanism of the entire creation. Okay, that's a second term that's defined by a second area. The third idea <coughs> is the actual technique. In other words, if you want to be able to manipulate or work this creation, or rather, that's one way of looking at it, or if you want to do what you have to do, the techniques, that's called Musa. You see? If I give you a Musa Shmuz, what I'm really telling you is how to do your job. If I give you a Ashkafa Shmuz, I'm really telling you what your job is, what the logic of your job is, what the rationale, and so on, and how your completion of your job interacts with everything else. Okay, so we've got the three areas, the design, the mechanism, and the technique. We've applied different words pr which primarily deal with those areas. The study of the design is really called Hashkofa. The study of the mechanism is called Kabbalah. And the study of the technique is called Musa. Now, in real life, or many Sfarim, if you look at them, there's a tremendous amount of overlap. You'll pick up a classic Musa Sefer, and some of it deals with Musa, and some of it deals with Hashkofa. It was the rationale for the technique is the Hashkofa, the actual how to do it, how to, is Musa. In other words, if one wants to study Gaiva or arrogance, how does one understand Gaiva? Why do, why do people have a tendency toward arrogance? How do you make void or work against Gaiva? How do you cult how do you foster humility? Okay? What things stop you from breaking your own arrogance? This is all Musa. It's you know it's, Gaiva is a component which has to be removed according to the design, which you'll understand later. And how do I do it is Musa. But of course many Musas from have the idea of what I have to do also. So in real in real life, or rather in real sperm, there's a tremendous amount of overlapping. But they're really different ideas. Okay? 
So those, that's the use of the, uh, the terminology that is often used. Now, once we have an understanding of the three areas which the Jewish philosophical system consists of, and we understand which terms are used to designate the different areas, primarily speaking, okay? Let's go into more of an understanding of those terms in a more of a general way. Now, obviously, when you study Hashkofa, basically, obviously, the, the, the design itself encompasses all three, if you really think about it. In any plans or any grand design, of course, there's the statement of the design itself. But as part of the design, you have the mechanism. As also part of the design, you have the technique for operating the mechanism. So the truth is, when you use the word Hashkofa, in a loose way, you mean all of it. The general idea of Hashkofa means all three ideas. Okay? So Hashkofa in a specific sense is a study of the design, but in the general sense, it's really studying everything. Okay? That's what Hashkofa is in a very general sense. Musa primarily is only that, and even in a general way, that's really what a Musa, Musa really means. Uh, Musa comes from the word uh, to, uh, to chocho, reproof. And that's really what it is. Actually, how to go about doing the things that the Rajnum wants to be done. Now, Kabbalah, there are just certain ideas I want you to understand. Now, Kabbalah, even though it primarily deals with the mechanism, but the in mechanism itself is really interwoven a lot with the design itself about the Bria. So, for those people who study Ashkafa, or who would like just to know what it's referring to, it basically includes both areas. It's, it has a lot to say about, of course, what it's all about, and of course, how do things work. So Kabbalah is really a study of both. That's the first idea of Ashkafa. The second idea is that Ashkafa, uh, Kabbalah deals with the primus, or the fundamental ideas of the mechanisms and the design. It goes into the fundamental ideas rather than the obvious ideas. For instance, it'll talk about uh, that, for instance, the term, one of the terms it'll use is spheres or emanations. And these emanations from the Rebbein is what eventually winds up into this entire creation. So it comes out that those emanations really are the fundamental uh, structure of all reality, because that's really what leads into reality. So Kabbalah as such deals with the fundamental ideas of reality. And it discusses, like I say, the areas it discusses is really the mechanism and the hashkofa. Also, one more, more idea about Kabbalah is that it's, most of it is hidden from people. It's not generally disseminated. You don't, you don't find Kabbalah shirim generally going on. And that's a third idea, is that the Kabbalah itself is generally not learned Barabim in public. In order to learn Kabbalah, one must have a very good idea of Hashkafa. It means the design itself, or else you really don't know what Kabbalah is talking about. Just a lot of words signifying concepts that one really has no idea what it really means. So that's an understanding of those terms in the general sense, or in a loose sense rather than in the specific sense that it's really used. Now, what is the value of coming to Hashkafa Shir? Right? Let's, let's, let's see, what is the rationale of coming Sunday at 1 o'clock to listen to Hashkafa Shir? Okay? Why is it important, if it's important at all? 
And if it is important, how should it be approached? Let's go back to the factory. I'll, sh I'll show you what I mean, because it's a good example. Let's assume you're applying for a job, okay? Now there are two approaches that you can learn about your job. One approach is where somebody can tell you, look, you want a job, but uh, you figure out what's going on. Okay, so you're on your own. You've got a week to figure out what's going on here. Okay, so what do you try to do? You try to, you look around the place, you try to interview people working there. Uh, you try in, in every way possible to figure out what's going on. Okay, now at the end of the week, you may have figured out by looking at the product and so on, what's going on. But there'll be a tremendous amount of confusion in your mind. Because there are many things you will not have discovered. And even those things that you have discovered, you don't clearly see the interrelationships between things going on. There are many things that, you know, it's really confusion. Now, what I'm, that's one approach. Another approach is you come into the factory and the person says to you, look, you know, I want you to learn to this particular job, but here's a manual. This tells you everything about what's here, what is divided into, and where you fit in the entire scheme, and actually what you really have to do. And it gives you a manual. And you sit down, and lo and behold, in three hours, you figure out what this person took a week to do, and he never reaches a clarity you do. Okay? Now, those two approaches is the same idea. If you want to learn about what the Bri is all about, what is it all? What is a mitzvah? Why is it so important to a mitzvah? Okay? Why in this form and not some other form? When you do a mitzvah, what happens? What is it? Hocus pocus? Magic? How do we understand the incredible amount of rituals that Yiddishkeit has to offer? And how do they involve itself in real life? How do you understand what's going on in the Bria now? In terms of the, uh, the tremendous amount of Hatzlocha that evil has. And evil itself can be looked at in the sense that anything which is not in accordance with Torah. Why is it so successful and so on? Why all of a sudden in the last hundred years was the tremendous proliferation of Chokhmah? Five thousand years mankind was, I mean, they had reached a certain level. The last hundred years, I mean, it's mind-boggling what goes on out there. Nine out of every ten scientists who ever lived still live today. It shows you what's really going on. So the question is why? What's going on really? So you can sit, there are different ways of approaching that. You can sit and learn Chumash. If you want, maybe you can go through Gemara or Mishnah, so whatever you try to learn some Sfarim, whatever. I guarantee you that when you finish, after years of work, it'll be a hodgepodge in your mind, okay? Because there's no real safer, or there's no real attempt at clarifying or giving it in a presentable, organized fashion. From the Torah, it's very hard to see what's going on, because the Torah usually is, speaks in very general ideas, and the Torah is very... It, it, it looks, in terms of the meaning, it's, it looks very superficial. Not that, it, of course, it's not, but its pre presentation is one of superficiality. It's very hard to go into tremendous amkus of Torah, because it's not obvious to people who learn Torah. And even if you learn in the Foshim, where you begin to see the amkus of Torah, it's extremely fragmented. You don't see the whole structure as a whole. And many Mephoshim, they may deal with some area here, and then, you know, 400 pages later, they'll talk about the same idea, and you'll never know. And if you don't know what's going on 400 pages later, you really don't understand the idea. There's no real attempt to organize in one spot for you. It's a tremendous irruvia, confusion.
Even if you learn Gemara, Gemara is, in, especially in Hashkafa, and that's dealt with in the Agadita, is a closed book in many ways. The Gemara is Muram's many Agadita's, which are very difficult to understand, because one does not have the key, one doesn't have the framework. So you see, in other words, that if you attempt to learn the entire idea of what's going on, and I mean all, the design, the mechanism, and even your role, it's difficult to really come away with a clear perception of what's going on. And even if you do to a certain extent, it takes years of study. Okay? Now, there must be a better way. The better way is by going to a Hashkafah that presents it precisely what's not presented in a very clear, organized, comprehensive fashion. Where after having gone to such a shir, you walk away understanding the entire system and how everything relates to each other. And as such, everything has tremendous meaning and relevance. Because in a dilemma, there's no comparison between somebody who doesn't see the connection and somebody who sees exactly what's going on. Besides the fact that he can understand what's going on in terms of the outside, the meaning of every mitzvah is a different kind of a mitzvah. And not in that, the, the, tech, the ability to reach high levels of ruchnis really becomes possible then. It doesn't become possible as long as confusion exists in your mind. So the necessity of having or studying Hashkafa is crucial to making it. And making it means to doing the task that was assigned to a person. Okay? That's the underlying rationale of why somebody should learn Hashkafa. Okay? And really what this she is going to attempt to do. It's going to attempt to give you a system of thought where you'll be able to understand a tremendous amount of what's going on. You'll have the framework. And even though it's not possible to deal with all the details, but because you have the framework, when you open a safe and you look at some Chazal, your understanding of Chazal will be much deeper than somebody else who has, had, who has not had the benefit of really going through it in a comprehensive way. So in any way, in any case, that's the rationale for a Shia like this, and what the objective of the Shia is. You know, it's really what's saying is, look, here's a manual, and study what it's all about. Don't do it by trial and error, what they call trial and error approach, or the shotgun approach. You know, you shoot out to all this farm and hope it's going to hit something, you know? That's not the approach that can be done, and even if it's done, it's years in the workings, and you never reach the same clarity. So that's what, what's going to be attempted here. When we study Hashkafa, the next idea to understand is, what are we talking about? How many systems are there of design? And now what system am I going to be using? And why? Okay? It's the next idea really you have to understand. There are many systems of thinking in terms of the Jewish philosophical system. It's probably the best English word you could use. Uh, Hashkafa you could with the, what's the Jewish philosophical system? How many different kinds of systems are there? Well, the idea is that there is only one system. There's only one reality. But the idea is how many people are trying to present that reality. That's, an, that's another question. Now, there are basically three different systems that one can study in Hashkafa. Each one being different and each one being based on a certain authoritative premise. How do they know they are right? 
right? That's really what you, what you want to know. Obviously, the era we're dealing with is, is so esoteric in the sense that it, it's not generally known. So the question of authority, how do you know you're right, comes in. So the idea is, first of all, that there are basically three systems. I'm not going to, certainly not going to go into it, but I'm going to just mention briefly the systems and I'm going to speak about what system we're going to be using and why. The first system one can call is the rationalist system, the mechkrim, the chukrim, the philosophers, the rationalists. Who are they? The Rambam, of Yosef Alboy, of Sadjigoyen, Kreskas, there are a lot of different, the Rasht Ibn Tibbun, the Ralbad. These are called the rationalists of the chukrim. Why? Because they lived in a time when the study of philosophy was very much merged with the study of philosophy you know, the Aristotelian system. Now, they did not have access to the Kabbalah. Now, what is the Kabbalah, you recall? It's a study in a general way of the design and the mechanism that was handed down from Moshe Rabbeinu. Now, maybe I should actually preface like that. Hashkofa was taught, it's part of Torah, okay? It's not something which was made up. It's not a part of Torah. It's part of Torah Shabbat Peh. Remember, there were Teresh was given and Teresh the written on the oral law. And Hashkofa, as such, was given to Moshe Rabbeinu, just like everything else was given in, in, in Sinai. And he transmitted that. But for some reason, and I'm not going to go into it, the Hashkofa part and the word, the word used to describe that transmission of Hashkofa is Kabbalah, because Kabbalah really means tradition. In other words, the study of the design and the mechanism was not given to the Hamaynam, means the populace at large. It was communicated only to Yechidim, or a small minority. Why was that? Well, I, I don't want to, because that's the whole rationale of the Pneumus of Torah. That, that itself is a whole, why the, the, the Kabbalah took this direction. But the fact is, is that it did take the direction. Now, in, in, in the idea of Ashkofa, certain ideas, of course, were given. But the inner ideas, especially the ideas of the mechanism itself, is, was not given for general knowledge. If you wanted it, it doesn't mean you couldn't have access to it. It means if you did, you'd have to go to somebody who had that knowledge. You see? It doesn't mean that it was a closed door. Uh, it doesn't mean that at all. It means it wasn't spoken out. Berabim, like, okay, you go to a, in, in a Shabbat Shuvah Drosha, right? And by Yom Kippur, you go to a, uh, a Drosha before called Shabashuv, right? So he says out publicly, you know? This wasn't publicly given. Now, where do we see that? There's a Mishnah Chagiga. The Mishnah Chagiga says that Maisebracious, the study of creation, okay? You can only darshan with three. I mean, you can't darshan with more than three students. The Mishnah says that. The Maise, or rather, Eindosh and Arroyas Begimel, the Maise Bracious itself, you can't dash in more than two. You can only have two students at one time. Yeah. In Maise Merkava, you cannot say to more than one student at a time. And even then, you have to only tell him in certain general ways. And he has to figure out a great deal. Now, Chazal were very much afraid that knowledge of the hidden meanings of Torah, if it was public knowledge, could be tremendously distorted. Which is what happened. What happened? The, a great tragedy before Klai Israel is when they did, when they translated the uh, Torah into Greek. 
that was a day of Chub in the class. So why? Ah, everybody's going to the Torah now because it's in Greek. Because look what happened to the Torah. Everybody laid claim to it. The Christians got a hold of it and became theirs. Right? Uh, the Bible critics got a hold of it and they just ripped it to bits and so on. I mean, that, that, that's what happens. So what the Torah tries to do is try to keep it within the faithful and not to publicly uh, disseminate it. Because it's subject to tremendous distortions and everybody tries to lay claim to it. Now, if this is true of halachas, how much more so is it true of the hidden principles of Torah? In fact, what, you can ask, why was Torah given in Baal and Baksav, right? Why was it given orally and written? And obviously the greater part of Torah is the oral. Because the Torah wanted to make sure that you have to come on to a Rebbe. Because you're not going to write it down, so there's no svarim. So if you want to learn Torah, you have to go to a school and listen to a Rebbe. There's no, there's no other way. That's what they mean when they said the Torah was not given to the rest of the world. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't given to the rest of the world, only to Jews. For whatever, and I, that, that itself has, what's the implication of that which we learn? What's the difference between a Jew and a Goy is? And why it started like that? Because in the beginning there was no such thing as Jews or Goyim, there was only other Mauritian. That's all part of Ashkafa. What happened? Was mankind in the actual events that he had to go through, something happened that split. They became the concept called Jew and the concept called Goy. Why? Okay, that, that's related. It's on. But in any case, so Kabbalah is the innermost meanings of Hashkafa that certainly was not revealed to everybody because people can grab a hold of that and really distort it. Okay? So that's the general idea of... Uh, of so Kabbalah, of course, uh, like I say, the whole idea of Hashkafa, and we, I use the word Kabbalah as meaning Hashkafa, because Kabbalah really means it was handed down. So it comes from Sinai. Now, but it was hidden for a great mass of the people. So, you have one system called the Chikrim, which is a system of the Rambam and all the Rashnas, the Murin of Ruchim, and so on. The Amunas Vedes, of the Rav Goyen, these are the different Sfarim, and so on. The, the uh, Yosef Alboy, the Sefer Ikrim, these are the famous Sfarim in that way. And they basically attempt to deal with Hashkofa using a lot of Aristotelian concepts that the Rambam tried to integrate the two. And a lot of what they say is not based on Kabbalah. It's not based on the tradition being handed down. In fact, when the Ramam says, when he's beginning to interpret the Maisim Merkava, which is the incident of the divine chariot in Yecheskel, which is really pure Kabbalah in the sense of the hidden sense, he says himself that I have no Kabbalah for this. Means I'm not telling you something that was handed down for me, from my Rebbe, who got it from his Rebbe all the way back to Sinai. I'm telling you something which is logically uh, makes sense to me. And he himself says that because what he wants to do is say, look, this isn't Terah Misina, you know, it's purely my what he's saying, I could be wrong. Okay? So therefore, that is the rational system, but that is very important because obviously a great deal of the time they're right. Because, you know, they were Rishonim and they knew how to extract from the Gemara what's really going on. But they were still missing a lot of the mainstream of what's really going on in Kabbalah. There were Gedalim in the time of the Rambam who did have the Kabbalah, the Ramban. The Ramban wasn't that much after the Rambam, it was 150 years or whatever, and he already was a master Mekubal, right? Yeah. What? He could, yeah, he, sure. Rabbi Yitzchuk um, Saginor, Rabbi Yitzchuk the Blind. The, what was that? Because you can only teach one or two people at a time. 
Yeah, you, the Mishnah the Mishnah says it's limited. <clears throat> you can only teach one person Kabbalah at a time, and even then you can't teach him like I'm teaching you Hashkafah. I'm I'm not even making you work for it. I'm just telling you clearly what's going on. You can't do that. If you give a Shin Kabbalah, at least then, now it's a different story. But at least then you have to sit down and say, okay, that there are ten spheres, and uh, okay, yeah, you figure out really what they all mean. Now, the, now these ten spheres are divided the parts of these. Okay, now you figure out what. Yeah, that, that's where you can teach Kabbalah. It is Beremes. The, the Talmud himself has to figure out what you're saying. Now you can imagine, I mean, what extent is, a, is the general populace going to know Kabbalah if this is the only way you can teach it according to the Mishnah? Obviously not very much. That's the system of the rationalists, people who try to know the truth by rational thinking, not by Kabbalah. That's the difference. By the use of their minds, but they didn't have a tradition in terms of Ashkofa. Now, that's one system. Now, before I get to the second and third system, I want to go into one other direction. There was a person called Rav Shimbayachoy. Okay, he was a Tana. He was one of the people who wrote the Mishnahs. He was extremely great, especially in the era of Kabbalah. Okay? Now, what he did is he wrote down the principles of the general principle, principles of Kabbalah, okay, in analogies. He didn't tell you clearly. You know, if I want to tell you something, I don't tell you the thing itself. I give you an example, like the factory. Right? Instead of telling you, I give an example, and then I never tell you what the analogy is supposed to be about. So the analogy, I, I give you a muscle, but I never tell you what the interpretation of that analogy is. The nisho. So what Shimon did is he wrote down the Klolem, the general principles of Kabbalah, in Misholem, in analogies, not interpreting those analogies. Okay. That was what had to be done at the time of Rav Shimon. That, is, that was then put into a sefer called the Zohar. Now the Zohar basically is a whole text of Midrashim. It's Drush, it's like, it's like the Midrash Rabbah. But there are certain parts of it that are heavy in Kabbalah. Okay. And Rav Shimon plays the most important, prominent role in those parts. That's where it comes from. Rav Shimon is the author. So that's what Rav Shimon did. This took place 2,000 years ago. That's all the Rabbanu Shalom allowed to be put down 2,000 years ago. Because you need a Haskoma, approval in Hashemayim. Sounds, you know, interesting, but you do. Okay. So 1,500 years passes, and that's all we have. And the Zoya is not even discovered until the 11th or 12th century, whatever. The manuscript was lost by the de Leon. Moshe de Leon, I forgot his first name. Whatever. Now, but this, even if you want to talk about analogies, which the Zaya does, but that's only the general idea. So along comes the Ari. Okay? The Ari comes in 15-something, comes out of Egypt, goes to Tzfas in Israel, and he starts writing, he had the Kabbalah, again the transmission, and he puts down the protum, the details of the Kabbalah, but again only in analogies. He fills in a great deal of the area that Rav Shimon left out, but he doesn't deviate from the style, only analogies. That's what the Ari does. So we now have Kabbalah in much more greater detail, and but it's only in analogies. Okay. Now, come another 200 years, 250 years later, and along comes Rav Moshe Chaim Sator. 
He writes that Rishus was given Minashemayim in heaven to him to reveal the Kabbalah in its interpretation. That's where we begin to understand. But he can only interpret the principles, not the details. So that's what he did. He interpreted or told what those words that they keep using in Kabbalah, what they really mean. And that's what he wrote down. And he wrote it down. What the general interpretation of the general principles of Kabbalah is. That's what the Ramchal wrote. Now, we see an interesting idea that Ramosha Chaimutzate was not just a Makubal. He was part of the process or plan to reveal the Kabbalah to mankind. Okay? So it's more than just a Makubal. So that's what Ramosha Chaimutzate Makubal means a Kabbalist. Kabbalist, you know, one who delves in these areas. The Hebrew word is Makubal. So we see that the Ramchal was actually part of the revelation of Kabbalah, the principles of Ashkofa, in that sense, toward mankind, because he writes that he had to be given permission to reveal those things. Okay. Now it's interesting, even the Ari was not allowed to write it down. He could only say it. He had to have a secretary, of Chaim Vital, who was his Talmud, to write it down. He couldn't write it down. Well, that's why, I, I don't know why, but this is fact. This, he could not write it down. But Chaim Vital is the one who wrote, everything we have in the Ari is written by Chaim Vital, his, his greatest Talmud. Okay? You just, you can see how gently they treat it in terms of revealing it. Now, to go back to the systems itself, the Posik they use is Seyd Hashem Lireyov. It's a Posik. The secret Hashem, the secrets of God, is only to those that fear Him. You know, because if not, if everybody can know those secrets, then uh, it's subject to incredible amount of distortions and, and pollutions or whatever, you know, just uh, a heyday. Uh, before I get to Ramchal, let me just take talk about the other system. Now, the third system, that's Ramchal, but I'll get back to Ramchal. The third system is the system of the Maharal. Have you heard Maharal Miprad? The Golem? Probably how everybody knows him as, unfortunately. Uh, the, go- the golem gives the uh, prestige to the morale. But in any case, uh, the morale was a very great Balashkofa. He wrote a tremendous amount, all Sifri morale. But unfortunately, the morale, even though he lived at the time of the Ari, did not have access to the writings of the Ari. So therefore, what he wrote is really based on previous. It was the Ramam, of course, Teret, Gemara, and so forth, and a certain amount of the Zohar. But again, since he was missing the Ari, then it's subject to a certain amount of distortion. There's there's certain ideas which he obviously is not in command of because he just didn't know. In fact, when you compare his system, just the way he looks at the whole idea of Mashiach, and you look at the way the Ramchal looks at the idea of Mashiach, you see it's vastly different. Again, because he didn't have access to that. So therefore, those are the three systems. You have the rationalist, Ramam and the whole Hebra, you have the morale system, and you have the system of Ramchal. Now, for obvious reasons, or rather, not obvious reasons, what we're going to be doing here is the system of the Ramchal himself. First and foremost, because authoritatively, that's the greatest. Because, like I said, he was not just the Makubo, but he was in the line of the revelation that Kabbalah was supposed to take. 
Number two, he was, in a, he was what's called a Chokham HaKoyleu. He was brilliant, not only a brilliant man, he wasn't restricted to one area. He wrote poetry, he wrote plays. That he's one of the first, the, uh, the secularists use him as Hebrew poetry. And they leave, they leave all the former stuff away and they just take the Hebrew. He wrote books on language, on communication. He wrote books, of course, in Kabbalah, methodology. He wrote plays, he's an incredible chokhm in general. He knew the sciences and so on. So when, when you, the, uh, the Swarm, when they refer to him, they call him the Chochma Kulel. All the Chochm who, who incorporates all wisdoms in him. And besides that, he was an incredible Mukubo. Unfortunately, he died when he was 40. You know, it's incredible that all this was acquired when he was 40, you know. Uh, he, he lived from 1706. He lived from 1706 to 1746. But what he did leave us is awesome in terms of its, uh, the amount of material. Not only the Ramchal was a tremendous chokhm, wise, tremendous uh, uh, knowledgeable person, but he had a clear ex way of expressing himself. His forms are very clear, they're very well organized, they're very general. I mean, it's very easy to distort what he's saying because many places he doesn't give you enough to really understand their very general nature but for his time apparently that was sufficient <clears throat> but he's a very clear writer it's one of the minuses of Amchal and he's a very good organizer he attempts to organize in fact he wrote Svarim on logic methodology you know it's how does people what's the thinking process itself he wrote on see if he's going so therefore, of course, if he wrote books on logic, then he obviously thought very logically and he presented his material very logically. So from all standpoints, the Ramchal is an excellent system to learn. He is the most authoritative system. And from him, one can get the greatest keys of all. So therefore, the system which we'll be using here is the system of Moshe Chaim And this year will be based on two of his from, which form his magnum opus in Hashkofa, not Kabbalah. One is called the Derach Hashem, the way of God, and the second safe is called Das Tfunois, an understanding of knowledge. Yeah. We've gone through three conceptual areas of Jewish philosophy, what they're called, the terms used in a general way, what, the t what each term means in a, a certain, in, in a uh, specific way, also an idea of the two approaches to learning Hashkafa and the value of one over the other. An idea of the three philosophical systems, the Rambams, the Maral and the Ramchal. And an idea of Kabbalah itself, some of the evolutionary, or rather the progression of Kabbalah as it makes its way through human history. And why we'll be going into Ramchal. Next week we'll be going into Ramchal itself and really begin going deeply into a lot of the areas he says.